Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Ernest Krim III is an anti-racist educator and hate crime survivor who uses black historical narratives to empower and educate families and train educators through an equitable lens. Mr. Krim, a South Side of Chicago native and University of Illinois graduate, is a former high school history educator of 12 years, who now advocates for social justice issues and teaches black history to the world through social media with a platform that reaches over 2 million people monthly. Additionally, he is the CEO of Krim's Cultural Consulting LLC, an international speaker and author of two bestsellers, Black History Saved My Life and the AEBCs of Affirming Black Children, and a passionate progressive education activist who has been featured on CNN, ABC, WGN, PBS, CBS, NBC, and Newsweek, amongst various other outlets. Please welcome Mr. Krim III to CTN with J.D. Fuller. Okay, welcome back, Ernest Krim. And it is so interesting to have conversations with you. I find myself completely going off my focus because we just naturally vibe and go into another area that's equally enriching and important to have a conversation about. So I want to start off this one with with a couple of things. One, you said something in the last segment like, you know, preparing kids, black bodies to go into academic environments, you know, that we deem as, you know, generating success or the best type of student. As a community, I understand we're not going to get the scholarships from HBCUs. But particularly if your kids have been educated in predominantly white spaces, you owe it to them to figure out how to get them to an HBCU because you want a well-rounded individual. And if they haven't had the education in public schools because you're in a more challenged economic environment, it's also important for them to go there because they're going to see people who look like them, teaching them from a lens that would have benefited them earlier and sure to benefit them in the future. But what say you? I agree. I agree. I spent most of my time teaching in a in a mixed school. I did teach two years at a, an alternative school in Chicago that was pretty much all black. But I but I will say that I feel like I saw the desire to attend HBCUs more when I was at that mixed school. Now, of course, a lot of this was post like you know a Black Lives Matter movement too. I think there was a resurgence in pride. But I think it's for the reason that you just said, because if you grow up in this mixed environment um, or majority white environment, and then you come to this awakening, you probably start to wonder, well, where can I get more of this? You know, as black folks, we have to have community to exist and to thrive. And oftentimes in a majority white or mixed environment, we might not be able to fully find that unless there's a group specifically for us. We need to have that communal base, that family structure somewhere. And, you know, from when I've been, to, and I did not attend, you know, but I, but, I, but I know based on the people I know, based on the family that has attended, based on what you hear, like the HBCU is going to give you that feeling that you can't get anywhere else, you know, and even beyond that, we have to just make sure whatever space we enter, we have to find a way to make community with those around us. And I think what's also important about that, especially now is you're going to be able to build with people afterwards because many of the connections I have when I left college are people who I used to attend school with, you know, because they're going to a different professional routes and they're taking, you know, different missions and things like that. So being able to establish those professional connections will mean the world moving forward. And then be, to be able to learn from some of the best professors 
in the world, especially for what we need to hear. Many of the professors I listen to right now, like Professor Greg Carr and Professor Daniel Black, they're teaching at HBCUs. Had I like, you know, known about them when I was younger, I probably would have been like, yo, let me go to Howard. Let me let me go to Clark or something like that. <laughs> and I got to say, too, like my mom was trying to get me to go to Morehouse. So I can't even front on that for a while. She was like, I need Morehouse, man, Morehouse, man. But I was just so set on kind of staying local, you know, and, and staying not too far away from home. So I wasn't like two hours away. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, you needed your community. Yeah, right, um, right. <laughs> You know, we are a collaborative culture. That's that is who we are. We're a collective. It's 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 at the core of who we are. And so you speak to that so accurately as far as I'm concerned, the importance. And you talk about you didn't know about HBCUs. I didn't even know they existed when I was in school. Yeah. So yeah. It, it was, a, you know, I'm, I'm on a bandwagon now. The other bandwagon that I'm on is the importance of community. And as far as this new language that's so strongly prevalent in schools, social emotional learning, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of schools are throwing that around. I'm hearing that when I interview people from other schools, you know, what is social emotional learning, but being a part of a community that mm -hmm. teaches each other? That's a part, you know, that's a piece of the action. It's like if affinity is necessary yeah. and they tend to think you're going to get it in another way. No, that that's the way you get it. And from a mental health perspective, I just keep pushing that yeah. to try to change the narrative of what you think it is, you know? Yeah, we're teaching human beings here. You know, it's, it'd be different if you were programming a computer that, that doesn't have feelings or experiences. You kind of, you just, you're, you know, you're making an app or something. You're just inputting data. You're inputting code. It doesn't work like that, you know? And and from, from the time that you start class, you start school here, you're dealing with kids. Like if you have 30 per class in high school, 30 different experiences, especially over the summer when kids are they're probably facing more danger, depending on the type of environment you are teaching over the summer when they're away from school. Sometimes kids are safest at school. So when you get to class and you got your pretty little lesson plan laid out and you think it's going to work, okay, five minute bell ringer, 10 minute this and five. It never works out that way. You know, especially and if you have kids who are open. Yeah. And then, then teachers get their feelings hurt. And then exactly. that's when it goes left. Right, right. Right. You know, it, it, it's it's real, especially if you are like that type of person where it just has to be in like an orderly fashion or, you get, or you're being evaluated by somebody that has that type of mindset. It's just not real life. Like what I started doing post 2020 was I started meditating in class with my kids. It was something nice. I always wanted to do. And I tried it once or twice before the pandemic. But once the pandemic happened and we were all in our little bubbles and on Zoom, I started making I called it Mindfulness Mondays or Meditation Mondays. So we took time over Zoom every Monday and then we did then we did journal entries and then when we went back to school, did the same thing. You know, like it, it's even just like psychologically for me, it helps to start my week by easing into the week, like start light on Monday and light on Friday. Do most of your stuff in the middle of the week, you know, and considering the fact that these kids are engaging and learning in the most like unhealthy way possible by sitting down so much. You have to do something to kind of speak to what they might be going to. It's not to say don't teach them none of your curriculum. It's to say that around that curriculum should be a focus on the kids. And one of the, a speaker that I always loved that I listened to when I was uh, at the school district was a guy named Brian Mindler. And he says kids over content. And that's something that I've always lived by. And he verbalized the, the, the most articulate way for me. It's I didn't teach because I do love our history, but I love our history because I love us, you know. You cannot love math more than you love kids. You can't love science more than you love kids. 
So once you go from that standpoint, everything else falls into place. That's perfect. I'm going I'm to shift a little bit from that because you said all there is to say, and I agree with you completely. I love that you brought this to light, and it's something I see as well. You said you were seeing too many posts from black bodies saying, we ain't our ancestors, as particularly after the brawl in Alabama. And you added that this is proof that we were taught our history by those seeking to oppress us. And we weren't taught that info for a reason. I love that. Say more about that. Yeah. That, that, oh, that's one of those things where, you know how they say that really grinds my gears. You know, that's <laughs> that's that's how they, you know, that how they talk. That, that would be mm-hmm. on the standardized test probably. But like that pissed me off for real, because like it, it at one point in time, I probably would have said the same thing. I understand. But there are certain things that I would teach in class that are common understandings of history that we have all adopted. And we've all had different teachers. We all know about the cherry tree, George Washington. We all know about him, Christopher Columbus, sell the ocean blue. We all know that things got better, quote unquote, when Dr. King was around, you know, like everything magically got better. And we were only taught one version of the civil rights era. So that's one thing about it. We often say, man, all they like for one, it takes strength to do what they did to not physically fight back. That's one thing we got to even understand. That's a lot of strength right there. Right. But also, too, a lot of the movement was able to exist and persist because they had reinforcement from people who were armed. <laughs> so like and even like it, it, Dr. Malcolm X would tell you, like, probably the reason why Dr. King may have been successful is because they knew if they didn't deal with him effectively, they got to deal with us. And for Malcolm X comes to like we act like the Panthers went around in the 60s. You know, we 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 act like every black person was marching and holding signs back then. Like my my grandparents were around there. I don't think they was out there protest. My grandfather had a gun, though. <laughs> you know, like I mean, it's, and I think we forget like during slavery, how we fought back based on our history. It's just incorrect to say we aren't our ancestors. We always fought back physically. We always fall back not physically. We always fall back by passive aggressiveness, all types of things. But even on a more metaphysical, spiritual level, we literally are our ancestors. So like if you don't feel the desire to or you, whether you do or don't, a part of that connects to who you were in a previous generation or you're, like our genetic makeup is made of those folks. And we cannot separate ourselves from that. And I think that that just kind of speaks to the way that we are often miseducated in this country. That just proves that we were taught incorrectly. It proves them right because they want us to think it's only been one way and that the other way is bad. No, there's merit in both. There's merit in nonviolent resistance and there's merit in punching somebody in their face. <laughs> what would have voted them? <laughs> you know, it, it really, really... It really hit me, and I felt that so deeply because I, I, it always bothered me, um, but I felt it so deeply when I read that recently on your post because, you know, I just came back from, from Africa mm-hmm. this summer. And um, when you stand in those spaces that our, that our ancestors had to stand in, when you, when you go to the door of no return, you feel your ancestors. I, I'm going to speak for me. I felt my ancestors, and, I, and I'm proud to be my ancestors. Yeah. So the idea that they want to separate us is the same way that they don't want us to think enslavement still in, impacts us. Exactly. That's, that's the same mentality. Exactly. You're not them. I'm not exactly. mine. Well, I am mine. And I'm right. still looking for yeah. you know the right to be who I am. So it really spoke to me. 
if we had a morsel of the courage they had and the experience, like if, if we just had awareness of our direct lineage and what they experienced at that particular time in history, oh, like everything would be towed up. <laughs> you know, For real. Like, like literally, like you said, they want us to be disconnected. That, that was that was the process of enslavement to disconnect us with who we naturally are, and who we really are. And one more thing before we go on, you know, I hear people all the time say, because I think it's in the same vein, you know, but what about the people who were enslaved? Oh, no, what about the people who were Africans who sold their peers to enslavement? They act like they had a choice. Right. <laughs> Do you think they woke up one day and said, Hey, I'm going to become a part of the, the colonization and sell my own. No, either you went along with it or you were one of the enslaved. I, I don't know how that simple piece gets lost yeah. other than upholding white supremacy. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, they came to your door with weapons and they made, you know, you have some folks who physically fought back. Some didn't. They made you offer you couldn't refuse. And also, too, there was no pan-African ideology back then. You know, you were your tribal group. You were Yoruba, you were Mende, you were Akan. There was there was no reason to have that that form of solidarity because you just had everything you needed in that region. So why do we have, what are we uniting to fight? There, there's nothing opposed yeah. us, you know, that's opposed to us. Yeah, that's great. That's, a, that's, an, that's an additional piece that I think is really important. Okay, I'm going to go to another quote also by Asahi Hilliard. Asa Hilliard. Asa Hilliard. Asa Hilliard. Okay, this is, this is, they're all powerful, but I'm, yeah, I'm really yeah. feeling this one in the moment. The engine of our group oppression is always cultural genocide. And this is what we've been talking about. Who he, he was speaking. He, look, I'm, I need everybody listening. Of course, get my books too, but like get Asa Hilliard books or put put them in YouTube. I mean, I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm a historian, so I'm always, I'm, I'm always wanted to expose people to the things I'm finding along the way, just as I'm grateful to come across these people that other folks have told me about. But one of the most difficult parts about being African or black in this country is your culture is so commingled with so much mess and chaos. Like it's, it's hard to pick out like what's actually yours and what isn't. And we have been like raised and nurtured to take our African selves and exist in what a, a under-resourced European society would have been. You know, like the reason why, like there, like there, there's white supremacy is because it, it's a a culture of lack. It's a culture of, of of fear that you you won't have the next meal, the next thing, because based on the climate that you were born and raised in, there's a possibility that you might not make it to the next season. So we were we have been placed in environments in our hoods, in the ghettos, our neighborhoods that are similar to that. I would imagine if you went to Europe, you would probably see something similar, right? I saw this brilliant video this brother made where he was talking about people, you know, saving up all their money to go to Paris. And this is what y'all wanted to see. Oh, Did you see that video? That's great. That's great. And, and, I, and I had it. always had that belief because when we, when we would talk about Africa in school and I would ask kids what they felt about it, they would always kind of say poverty. I say, I can show you images of homeless people in America. I can show you skid rope. I can just do it like just over the top with it. And you would think that America is one of the poorest nations in the world. It's propaganda. You can do the same thing with Europe. Our culture, we still have it in us. We came over here, nothing physically, but everything spiritually. Our culture is all embedded in how we act. It's embedded in American culture. Unfortunately, they've adopted and profited off it. So the cultural genocide part comes in with the confusion of us being put in a system or structure, or let's say a vehicle where, or barrel where we literally feel as though we have to fight and hurt and kill each other 
whether it be physically or emotionally or mentally, just to survive and be our best selves. But the first thing they did, besides just stripping us away from our homeland, is making us think that we were individualistic people. When we are community first, family first, spirituality first, and all things flow from that. Absolutely. We've been talking about that a lot in mental health, you know. The idea of the Eurocentric lens yep, of, yep. you know, determining what psychology is and totally taking away the African yep. spirituality and yes. what propaganda that has been yep. figuring out how to reintegrate the, the reality. You know, when black bodies say stop killing us, <laughs> many people in white bodies respond to, well, black on black crime. Why don't you talk about that? That's the response, right? That That's the, the, yeah. the one that's going to lead into making a point as to yeah. where we should focus. How do you respond to that? That's yeah, one of the most foolish things, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you're telling somebody like, yo, you know, stop, stop, stop shooting at my car. It's like, oh yeah, but y'all inside the car fighting each other. So like, you want me to stop <laughs> yes. shooting at your car? Well, y'all stop <laughs> fighting first. Then I'll like, bro, like, it's, like, and, and, and the fact is part of the reason why we in the car fighting is because y'all shooting at our car. Or you put us mm. in an environment where the car is always getting shot at. So like, mm. you know, the so-called black on black violence phenomenon roots and stems from this idea of white supremacy, so-called white supremacy. Because again, I mean, nobody's perfect. Violence will happen, whatever. Right. But like to the degree that it happens in our areas, it's because of we the, like literally is called structure of violence. We are placed in areas where you go to any hood in America, red line. We weren't able to buy certain homes businesses didn't come. People can come from outside our community, get business loans that we can't get, sell us food that's destroying us and killing us, send us to dropout factories. You know, then we finish school. If we do finish school, then there's no jobs in the area. So it's like when I see the person who's next to me the most and we're struggling too, like quite honestly, we create these, this idea that maybe they're the problem. And then we then we have music created, funded by them outside of our community. That's the soundtrack to our destruction. Mm. <laughs> and then and then the movies and stuff as well. So I mean, it's like literally this is this is the makings of white supremacy. Was Carter G. Woodson would say the miseducation of us. Like that's that's what happens in in this in this structure. And the thing is, like it's this idea that if you go into our neighborhoods, you're just gonna get shot. Like it, it don't even happen like that. There are people who are at odds and have been for years. And we're talking like reoccurring people for the most part. These are folks who are mostly have been doing the same thing. This this ain't the vast majority of black folks. The vast majority of black folks in their community is minding their business. And a lot of them, I would say there are more folks protesting the violence than are actually committed to the violence. It's just that when somebody gets shot and killed, that's, of course, going to make headlines more than somebody doing an anti-violence protest. The, the other part of that is, you know, I just want to emphasize poverty. Right. You know, pro- poverty yep. breeds yep. crime. Yep. That that is the core issue. Yep. Is poverty is is the seed yep. from which crime grows, and we have to stop placing it on a, a group of people yep. and not look at the core issue. So thank you for that. Yep. Okay, another quote: Whoever controls your kitchen controls your revolution. Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard that in a recent interview I was listening to with brother, I believe his name is Nuri Muhammad. Um, he was talking about how Elijah Muhammad talked about eating one meal a day and fasting. And, you know, it really resonated with me because I remember actually reading that book when I was young. I think it's called How to Eat to Live. 
And the idea of eating one meal a day, which is like the most absurd thing I ever heard of. And I was like, probably fresh out of college. I'm like, bro, what, how do you how do you do that? Right now, I'm at the point where I do a lot of fasting. Sometimes I, I feel best doing one meal, two at the most. If I'm like going to work out in the morning, maybe I'll do something like that. But it just made me think about how the way that I eat now and how like before I was into all of this black stuff to this degree and to speaking. I was just as invested in learning about my health. And I still do. That's the other thing I really invest in and, and read about. It just lets it made me reflect on the fact that our neighborhoods didn't have anything. Like we didn't have a grocery store nearby. We went to the, you know, we would play ball all day, then go to the local corner store, get honey balls, get candy. You know, they got expired stuff in there. They letting they letting kids under 21 buy liquor and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and every restaurant is cancerous. It's like it's literally feeding disease. And not to say it's not good. Because <laughs> they 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 know they know this how, how to get us right we, all of the salt the fat the sugar all of that but like we don't have the option that like the, if if you go outside of you know most neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago you go maybe downtown or to the north side you know even there are certain parts on the south side too where you'll see like just the option of you can you can have this type of food or you can have something that's gonna feed your soul and your mind but most of our communities in our large cities don't have that option so. We eat this food and it's causing behavior issues. You know, the, the, the chemicals, the, the, the color additives and things of that nature. I mean, you talk about hypertension, like our country as a whole is overwhelmingly overweight and obese. We're impacted by that more. Whereas we come from people who previously weren't impacted by that at all. We're talking even just like a generation ago, especially even where we came from. Think about that. Like our folks said we didn't have obesity issues hundred years ago like that in our community. So this is something that is literally happening and transpiring even more because again of the, the, the enclave of poverty, the structure. And um, if you grow up in this and it, you send your kids to school with unhealthy lunches as well. So we can't even possibly even think about doing something to change ourselves because we're fighting high blood pressure, diabetes, and you know, back problems, all types of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, in Senegal, one of the guides guides talked about that. He said, look around, you see people in our community all of the time exercising, all of the time doing something yeah. with health. He says, I don't know where that came from, that we don't know how to care for ourselves. Look around you and see. It's like a constant thing. Yeah. I thought that was pretty powerful because that's definitely something that is, you know, yeah. incorrectly represented. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I have a final question for you, and then um, you get to add all your handles, let everybody know where to find you, once again, your books, et cetera, okay? Perfect. Okay, so you are an author. Hmm. You've been featured in magazines and on television. Your cartoon and your cartoon character, it's genius. You have got to do more with that. That was just like, how does this guy come up with all <laughs> this? It is so amazing. So I'm hoping to see many oh, yeah. more of them. You got some more in the works, yeah. Excellent. So what's next for you? and What's your goal? Wow. Yeah. Whenever I get that question, I, I, I become very reflective because, you know, I'm, I'm a year removed from the goal being to retire. Right. And not to say that was my end goal as a teacher, but that's often the goal that's kind of forced on you. When you get a you know a job in our system, they, the expectation is that you work 25, 30 years or whatever, and then you retire, get your pension. My goal is honestly just to reach as many of our kids in our community as possible with my platform and to be able to continue to, to make a living doing it. I, 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 I aspire 
I don't not for more recognition, but recognition to get the message out to more people. You know, there are certain people I, w- I would love to talk to, certain platforms I would like to be on, but it's more so is because like I, I I've received so much confirmation that I that I I got something some people need to hear more. You know, it started off as in the classroom, kids telling me. If you can imagine, like there was a point in time, kids telling me this, and like, okay, I'm a pretty good teacher, but but often being timid about sharing my story or speaking publicly. And now it's like, okay. I'm saying some stuff and, and the stuff I was doing in that closed classroom with 30 kids was really revolutionary because now the way that I'm sharing online, I'm getting that confirmation. It, it's it's just to be able to, you know, I, I, I told somebody before, I think this kind of sums it up. I want to do for our love and appreciation and, and efforts to learn black history what Dr. Carter G. Woodson did 100 years ago. The wow. fact the fact that and that's a bold statement, right? The fact that he was the one who said we're going to make this a week. It's going to eventually become a month. My goal is for us to understand that this is a year. It's every day. It's our life. So I just want to impact as many children and by a result of that impact as many parents as possible. And my, my and I will say, too, maybe the best way for me to, to think about this goal, now that you asked the question, is probably to, for me to look at what do how do I want to serve better? I mean, what do I want to learn more of? And I'm on this journey now to learn more about what we were and who we were prior to enslavement. My specialty is African-American studies. And I can spit out facts top of it, you know, top, top of the dome when I'm making videos with that. But I'm I'm now extremely curious about making that deeper connection to, like you said, when you were in Senegal. I haven't been there yet to, to Africa. Like I want to I want us to understand. I do that in my book, my first book, too. But I need to go deeply into it. And the more I go into it, I think my gift is being able to break this down and explain it. I think the more people I'll be able to reach. So five years, you know, I just see growth and I see growth because I see growth in our community. So. That's amazing as usual. I feel like I say it's amazing after everything you say, but it's genuine. It's genuine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's authentic, I should say it, right? Right, right. <laughs> All of your handles, please. And once again, where people can buy your book. Yeah. So Instagram. Books. Yeah. Instagram and TikTok is MRCrim3. That's like Mr. Crim3. The only one that's different really, you know, is LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, I'm on the professional thing too. I'm posting these videos on there too, for the most part. You can find me there. My full name, Ernest Crim the third. You know, put it in. YouTube as well. I've been reposting videos on there doing pretty well. And you can find my books, booking information, any other resources. I have a K through five online black history course. You can find that at earnestcram.com. And did you say website? Yeah, earnestcram.com. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Linktree, same thing. Yep. Yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. My Perfect. LinkedIn. Yeah. No, but Linktree. Do you have link? Oh, Linktree? yeah. Yeah. My, my, my Linktree would be as Mr. Cram three. You can find it on my social media okay. pages. Yep. Uh, I just want to make sure I got them all in there. So, Ernest, you know, you are the educator I wish I had growing up. Your intelligence is a part of the reason. But most importantly, it's because you would have taught me what I needed to know. And in the way I needed to know it, you You know, that's an important nuance. Right. Because people can teach you stuff. But like you say, your creative way of teaching you know, you would have let me know what would have benefited me most. Yeah. And I just think that's that's invaluable for kids today yeah. um, to not just be able to repeat things, but to feel it, like you say, you know, right. and, to, and to know it from that that lens is really important. I also appreciate your sense of urgency about educating others. That resonates with me. That's how I've moved through my career. And I appreciate your passion. And, and, and I have to say right up there, your endurance. 
you. you know, for changing the narrative. Your energy is is contagious. Please keep doing what you're doing. I just wanted to make that very clear Great. about the, the elements that I appreciate, not just say, thanks for coming on, because I think all of what you do is so intentional and, and needs to be understood from that type of lens. I can't get enough of it myself. I'll keep following, watching. And thanks again for coming on and, and hanging out with me. I really, really, really value your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You ask great questions. I got to add that. You bring out some <laughs> great insight and thoughts. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, brother. You too. Take care. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.